Evergreen Sermons Online and Pastor Michael Gabbard's Wednesday night series, First Corinthians Church for Broken People. This message from January 22nd, 2020 is entitled Parameters for Corporate Worship, citing First Corinthians chapter 14. All right. I appreciate you being here. I, uh, I already shared with somebody my story. I, I heard years ago about, uh, about a preacher with, in bad weather who, um, was there at church and sure enough, it was Sunday morning and only one lone rancher showed up. And the preacher thought to himself, he said, you know, I, I'm not quite sure what to do, but you know, this guy made the effort and came all the way out here. I, I need to, I need to treat it seriously. And so, so he stood up and led all the songs and the preacher and the rancher sang the songs and said all the prayers and walked out and handed him the offering plate and came back, stood up and preached the whole message with all the energy that he could and walked to the back and greeted the man on his way out the door. He said, I appreciate you coming. I hope you uh, felt like it was a worthwhile experience. And the old rancher said, well, preacher, let me tell you. He said, when I go out on cold mornings, if all my cattle don't come up to the truck to be fed, if just one of them shows up, I don't give him all the hay at the same time. So, so I always have to gauge when the weather's bad. It's like, okay, I'm going to have, how many people am I going to have? How much should I really just, you know, hand off? But I appreciate you being here. We're in a teaching series and have been for some time from the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, the Corinthian church, I've said this before, they were the most dysfunctional church that we know about in the New Testament. And yet, uh, the apostle um, refused to give up. It would have been easy to just say, you know, you guys are hopeless. Let's just, uh, let's go down, down the street and start a different church. But chapter by chapter, with incredible patience, Paul attacks one problem at a time to try and help the church work through their issues because uh, it's not really just that there needs to be a healthy church in the city of Corinth, which there certainly did need to be. Corinth was widely uh, had, had a reputation, widespread reputation, as the most immoral city in the Roman Empire. They needed a gospel witness. But I think it's more than that. I think Paul has such a deep appreciation for and commitment to the body of Christ that, to put it in medical terms, since, since he uses the image of the body, I think Paul felt like that in the same way that we talk about somebody that's, uh, that's had a serious accident or, or a serious illness, we talk about the doctors using extreme measures to try and save them. I think for Paul, the church is such an important thing in the world that he was willing to use extreme measures. He was going to go all the way down. He was not going to give that church up without a fight. And so he starts with rivalries and divisions in the church, and he systematically walks through the most extraordinary issues, a man sleeping with his, with his father's wife and, and just bizarre stuff. Well, in chapter 12, he finally gets to talk about, uh, about spiritual gifts. But chapter 12 is not ultimately about spiritual gifts. Chapter 12 is about the church understanding what spiritual gifts are. They, coming out of a pagan background, they had the idea that the more gifts you could lay claim to, the more spiritual you could be considered 
in the congregation. By the same token, the gifts that were showier, that were, that were more animated, more ecstatic, out of their pagan background, the idea was the more caught up you were, that was supposed to be an indication of a greater degree of control by the gods. So those pagan ideas infiltrated the Christian church as the Corinthians came out of that culture into Christianity. And so consequently, there was a real rivalry about who had what gifts and, and they would measure themselves against each other by, to, to determine who was the most spiritual. And they loved tongues because it was showy. It was ecstatic. It, 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 it was, it was, uh, you know, it, it caused people to notice you. And it was proof that you were under the influence to a greater degree than the people around you. So Paul sp- spends chapter 12 uh, dismantling their misunderstanding about the way the church functions and about spiritual gifts. Well, he finishes chapter 12 by saying, and let me show you a better way, even than anything that we've talked about. And so we get to chapter 13, and Paul is going to talk about something that overthrows, that throws farther than anything he's already talked about. And he makes the case that all of these gifts are are, are going to go away. They're temporary for the season that the church needs them in this world. But there's something that doesn't ever go away, and that's love. But Paul is the master trickster. Because you get to chapter 13, and I, I always I always love that, that people read 1 Corinthians 13 at weddings. Because they're like, oh, it's just such a lovely uh, poem about love. No. <laughs> chapter 13 is Paul throwing cold water in your face by just hitting you again and again. Love is not this. Love is not that. Love is not this over here. We think that's a love chapter, and it is ultimately about love, but he's describing love by comparing what we should aspire to by the typical behaviors that are so common among us, particularly to the church in Corinth. Everything that he says love is not was something that he had observed in their church. So if you want to experience love, if you want to strive for love, if you want the better way, the more excellent way, the way that overthrows everything else, then you've got to recognize that these things that you've latched on to have to be put aside. Well, now we get to chapter 14. In chapter 14, Paul seemingly comes back to the topic of spiritual gifts. But it's interesting because what he really what he's doing, and this is where this is where studying the, his flow of thought all the way through and, and not breaking it up into into standalone chapters is really important. Chapter fourteen is typically described by people to say, "Oh, First Corinthians fourteen, that's the chapter about tongues." Yes and no. Paul is going to talk about tongues. He's going to give some detailed analysis to that topic. By the same token, he's going to give a detailed description of prophecy. In fact, he's going to take those two particular gifts and set them against each other to compare value to try and bring the Corinthians back to this idea of of what uh, what they should be striving for. 
Now, here's the misunderstanding that, that, that we often, that I often run into in, in 1 Corinthians 14. The section on tongues, uh, people pull a couple of verses out there, uh, out of that chapter to make a case for, um, this or that, whatever. We'll talk about those as we get to those verses. But here's the vital interpretive element that you have to hold on to before we start the chapter. And that is, Paul is not primarily talking about any spiritual gifts as it relates to a particular individual. This is not a chapter on you taking a spiritual gift inventory so that you can discover what you have. The key thing that we have to remember as we come to chapter 14 is Paul is now looking at the assembly, the corporate gathering for worship of the church. And what he's going to say is, while there are some uses for these gifts in other places, there are certain guidelines, maybe you want to even call them restrictions, for the practice of certain gifts in the corporate setting of the church. And so remembering that, that Paul is not talking primarily about the effect of worship on the individual. He's talking about the public assembly. Um, let's go to, let's go to this chapter. Um, let me just read a good chunk of it and then we'll, we'll come back and try and break it up. There's 40 verses here. What are the odds you think? Chapter 14 might be two lessons. Let's see. Paul says, pursue love. You know, he's just coming out of chapter 13, so that makes sense. Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, and above all, that you may prophesy. For the person who speaks in another language is not speaking to men, but to God, since no one understands him. However, he speaks mysteries in the spirit. But the person who prophesies speaks to people for edification, encouragement, and consolation. The person who speaks in another language builds himself up, but he who prophesies builds up the church. I wish all of you spoke in other languages, but even more that you prophesied. The person who prophesies is greater than the person who speaks in languages, unless he interprets so that the church may be built up. But now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in other languages, how will I benefit you unless I speak to you with a revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? Even inanimate things that produce sounds, whether flute or harp, if they don't make a distinction in the notes, how will what is played on the flute or harp be recognized? In fact, if the trumpet makes an unclear sound, who will prepare for battle? In the same way, unless you use your tongue for intelligible speech, how will what is spoken be known? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different kinds of languages in the world, and all have meaning. Therefore, if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker will be a foreigner to me. So also you, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, seek to excel in building up the church. Now, uh, the outline I've given you is a little more detailed than I normally do, but I, I just want to be able to, to focus on some stuff. I've just given you some verses at the start. He's going he's gonna to start right at the beginning comparing these two gifts. He pulls prophecy in tongues, I think because... Of the list of, 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 
of gifts that he's already covered in chapter 12, I think prophecy is the one Paul believes has the most potential benefit for the church. The Corinthians, on the other hand, were enamored with the gift of tongues. So he takes those two and he sets them side by side. But but remember what I said about the corporate setting, and, and I've listed some verses there so that you can kind of see this uh, emphasis all the way through the chapter. Um, Paul taught us in chapter 12 that spiritual gifts are not ultimately God's gift to you for your benefit. What God does by the Spirit is he gives you a spiritual gift then he gives you, as a gifted believer, as a gift to the church. Your gift is not about letting you puff out your chest because you're somebody. Your gift is to make the church better. Now, in these verses, and we'll we'll, we'll go through them, but, but where I stop there at, at, at verse 12, he says, Since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, seek to excel in building up the church. That is a direct uh, rebuke to the Corinthians because how were they using spiritual gifts to build up themselves, to make themselves look more spiritual, to evaluate where they ranked with the other people in the church. Paul says, listen, you're clearly zealous. You, you're chasing after the gifts. Go ahead, chase after the gifts, but understand that the gifts are for the building up of the church. All right. Now, with that parameter, that 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 framework, uh, let me let me work through some of this. He wants you to focus on the edification of the body. He wants you to focus on disciplined conduct, um, the building up of the body, as opposed to their desire uh, to turn the church into what one writer called a Gnostic conventicle. That is. Um, a collection of private individuals who just happen to gather in the same place at the same time trying to out, outdo each other in spirituality. There are a lot of churches, even, even churches where this is not explicitly a problem. In the American evangelical experience, because of our culture, we are one of our, one of the great strengths that produced America was this idea of kind of a rugged individualism. This Horatio Alger uh, mindset that, that, uh, that if you work hard enough, you just pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. You don't have to rely on anybody. This is the land of opportunity. You just go out. While that's true in, in an economic sense, while it's true in, in lots of ways, it's, it's kind of one of the secrets of the success of this nation And yet, that successful mindset, that work ethic, if you will, when it infiltrates a church, it makes church simply a gathering of individuals who are practicing their religion individually. They just happen to do it in a common location. That is not the biblical picture of the body of Christ. I mean, go back to chapter 12. The whole image of the body is that the hand can't get along without the foot. The ear can't get along without the eye. If everything in the body was an ear, where would the hearing, where would the, where would the seeing be? If everything was a nose, where would the, where would the talking be? You know, he, he describes the absurdity of a collection of parts that don't function 
as a healthy body. Well, now we've gone through love as this, as this intentionality that should set the atmosphere for the way we do church. And now he's bringing all of 12 and all of 13, and he's coming back to this idea of how he wants the Corinthians to function as a church, not so concerned with their personal experiences, but with what strengthens the whole body. He wants them to focus on order, self-control. You'll see these in, in verses that we're about to read. Um, he's going to tell us that a, a church needs to be under the, under the control, under the leadership of the Holy Spirit. Um, but he wants them to understand that that is accomplished by the building up of each other in this process. Let's just look through these verses. He starts by saying, um, a person who speaks in another language is not speaking to men, but to God, since no one understands him. However, he speaks mysteries in the spirit. But the person who prophesies speaks to people for edification. Immediately, he says, okay, here's one of the first obvious differences. Tongues is between a man who's speaking and God. Unless, under the extraordinary operation of the Spirit, unless God gives in that moment someone to interpret. Without interpretation, there's no way that what is said by the speaker can build up the church. And Paul's uh, measuring rod, his plumb line, is that that's what this is all about, building up the church. He says, on the other hand, prophecy, prophecy is specifically designed to communicate truth to other people. Um, the person who prophesies speaks to people for their edification, for their encouragement, and their consolation. The person who speaks in another language builds himself up. That's what the Corinthians were doing. But he who prophesies builds up the church. That's Paul's priority. Now, the next verse is what throws people for a loop, especially, especially people from our theological tradition. They wish Paul had never said this. He says, I wish all of you spoke in other languages. Excuse me? What did Paul just do? He just undercut the whole idea that tongues never has any value. We've got people that say, well, no, no, that's, uh, tongues are not a real thing. That's, well, Paul seemed to think they were a real thing. In fact, he says, I, I wish all of you spoke in other languages. I wish you could experience that kind of moment. But he immediately says, but I wish even more that you prophesied. Why? Because the context of this chapter, Paul's not talking about your personal experience with God. He's talking about the church. This is a letter to the church. The gifts are to strengthen the church. And some gifts, he says, have more potential to strengthen the church. While the ones the Corinthians were working after, chasing after, trying to get a hold of, they typically have less value for strengthening the church. The person who prophesies is greater than the person who speaks in languages unless he interprets so that the church may be built up. What's Paul? He keeps coming back to the same thing. What's his standard for evaluating the gifts? Does it make the church stronger? Does it make the church better? Does it advance the effective mission of the church? If the answer is not really, then Paul didn't want it. He's not interested in it. 
But now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in other languages, how will I benefit you? Unless I speak to you with a revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching. He's saying the same thing over again. But he now he's gonna he's gonna bring some illustrations, okay? Paul's this is a written sermon. He's gonna bring some illustrations. The first illustration is musical instruments. Even inanimate things that produce sounds, flute, harp, if they don't make a distinction in the notes, how will what is played on the flute or harp be recognized? Man, I remember. I played uh I played the cello. In high school, first chair, Tulsa Will Rogers Philharmonic Orchestra. I know, I know you're stunned. But I also remember one of the big things that, that our conductor, that our teacher always hammered. Don't slide your fingers. Pick them up. Make the notes distinct. Why? Because laziness in the fingering of the, of the instrument cause the music to just be a blur of sound that's what paul's saying there needs to be even in inanimate objects there's not value unless there's a distinctiveness to each of the sounds that can be heard and it becomes something so much more when this instrument and this instrument and this instrument are all pulled put together and they're all distinct and they all make a contribution then you have this remarkable presentation this performance That's Paul taking a musical analogy and applying it to the church. Well, then he does another one. In verse in verse eight, he goes out of out of musical instruments as uh, as music makers, and he talks about uh, the trumpet, which is typically used to call an army to action. If the trumpet makes an unclear sound, who will prepare for battle? The trumpet was a way to summon an army, and there were a series of particular. bugle calls if you will and each call meant a different action assemble retreat advance they all had their own sounds but if the one blowing the trumpet wasn't distinct on the sound that he was giving what happened that one misuse sent the entire army into confusion not knowing what to do well he uses one more here in verse 9 In the same way, unless you use your tongue for intelligible speech, how will what is spoken be known? For you'll be speaking into the air. He says, just take it from the standpoint of human conversation. Um, You at the stage of life yet where everybody around you seems to be mumbling? Yeah, exactly, right? And what happens? It's incredibly frustrating when they're talking, but what you hear is... Now, whether that's a problem of hearing or a problem of speaking, you know, that's what you have to figure out. But that's Paul's analogy. When somebody mumbles, when they, when they, when they don't speak clearly, there's no way to have effective human conversation. These are all illustrations of what he's, of the case he's trying to make for, for public worship. Paul's priority for the assembly of worship for the church corporate is that he wanted something profitable to be understood. He didn't want the experience. He didn't want the warm fuzzies. He didn't want you to walk out and go, I have no idea what they were talking about, but they sure were enthusiastic. No, 
He wants the word to be implanted in a way that makes an impact. He wants you to understand. So he keeps coming back to this business about prophecy. Uh, Verse 10, there are doubtless many different kinds of languages in the world and all have meaning. Therefore, if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker will be a foreigner to me. He says, I'm not saying that, that, um, that the language is not legitimate. I'm just saying that if I don't understand it, the different, and I've experienced this. I've traveled so many places in the world. I've had some remarkable experiences worshiping with churches where I didn't speak the language. And I will grant you that there is an atmosphere, there is a brotherhood that you can sense, that you can feel, even if you don't understand the language. But that camaraderie, that that strengthening, that encouragement, while it is there, by definition, it's always limited because you can't understand what's happening. That's what Paul is pressing them for. You say, well, um, so is it wrong to go to a church that speaks another language? No. Paul's case is not... Remember remember the, the phrase in chapter 12, uh, I mean chapter 13. Paul talks about speaking, even if I speak with the tongues of angels. Well, that almost certainly comes from the Corinthians speaking in ecstatic languages that no one could understand and claiming some sort of spiritual success for the individual because they said, we're speaking the language of the angels. I think Paul's answer would have been, if the audience is made up of angels, fine. But since they're not, what good is it? All right. Let's see where this goes. Um, he's going to he's going to really begin to focus more on the on their the differences. Uh, let's see, verse thirteen. Therefore, because of everything that he said, therefore, the person who speaks in another language should pray that he can interpret. For if I pray in another language, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. What then? I will pray with the Spirit, and I will also pray with my understanding. I will sing with the Spirit, and I will also sing with my understanding. Otherwise, if you praise with the Spirit, how will the uninformed person say amen at your giving of thanks, since he does not know what you're saying? For you may very well be giving thanks, but the other person is not being built up. Let's stop right there. He's he's, he's making this case that they have to... um, he, he, he wants them to be legible. He wants them to have human understanding. When tongues are used in personal prayer, he says, okay, maybe you are in communion with God, but in corporate worship, which is the context of the chapter, he's not throwing rocks at somebody in private prayer, even though he does make the statement that, that even in private prayer, uh, there's only so much value you can get yourself. Now, there is a communion with God, I suppose, that, that can come in that moment that can be extraordinary. In fact, uh, I think I, I think I referenced, um, oh yeah, Romans 8, 26 and 27. If you go there, that's Paul writing to a different church, the Roman church, and, and he talks there about sometimes 
We are so desperate that we don't know how to pray. We don't know how to communicate adequately. We can't even articulate the depth of the agony for which we are trying to pray. And Paul says, listen, in those moments, the Holy Spirit is right there. The Holy Spirit is actually taking your inability to communicate. And he himself is presenting those requests before the throne. Listen, there are those moments, and Paul is not denying that. But remember, in this chapter, it's about corporate worship. And so he says, I'm less concerned with your individual communion with God than I am with the corporate communication that comes from God. It's the nature of prophecy that uh, that it makes the word understandable. Listen, we can set aside the whole conversation about tongues and have and have a whole separate conversation about pastors who preach in such a way that people walk out with no idea what they said. I don't know if it's a PhD thing. I don't know if it's a a professor thing, but I just know that 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 I've sat in 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 sermons before and listened to sermons thinking if I hadn't been to seminary, I would have no clue what this guy was talking about. The vocabulary they use, the, the you know, this is not Paul's not just talking about tongues. He's talking about the inappropriateness of anything that actually makes it more difficult to grasp the word that God has for a people when they come together. One of my favorite compliments, honestly, one of my favorite compliments, the the, the last Sunday of the month, every month, is when kids' church takes a break and all, all the littles come and do big church. One of my favorite compliments is when a young couple comes up and says, listen, He's coloring with his crayons and, and, and he, you might not think he's listening, but when we get home, he heard everything you said. He tells us the sermon. He relates the stories you shared. And I'm like, okay, that's a success. When the little ones understand, hopefully the adults can pick up something, right? You know, we don't really do kids sermons, children's sermons here, but you know why pastors do children's sermons? They're talking to the adults. Why? Because they can sh- they can say things in a vocabulary that is simple enough for the children. But all teaching should be simple enough for people to understand. Listen, if you want to see my Ph.D., you drop by my office. It's hanging on the wall. It is not my job on Sunday mornings to show it off. You need to understand a communication from God. That's what Paul's talking about here. With the Corinthians, it happened to be tongues that was getting in the way. But it can be an overinflated intellectualism just as easily. Anything that hinders communication in the corporate body where the word is not adequately understood, Paul's not in favor of that. He says, um, let's see, let's pick up. Oh, 
you know, he, he talks about if, if you're, if you're, if you're speaking or praising or singing in the spirit, uh, the uninformed person can't even say amen. They can't even be in agreement with you because they don't understand what it is you're doing. Um, verse 17, for you may very well be, be giving thanks, but the other person is not being built up. Again, here's Paul's measuring stick. Is what's happening in the worship service building up the body? If it's not, toss it. Verse 18. Another verse. Baptist wish Paul hadn't said. He says, I thank God that I speak in other languages more than all of you. Uh, Paul. <sighs> Drives us crazy when he does that. When Paul suggests something that we've already decided is not possible. I think Paul says that right here because the Corinthians need to understand he's not hammering any particular spiritual gift. What he's hammering is unproductive worship services. And in this instance, it was tongues getting in the way of worship being useful. But Paul would be just as put out with anything else that makes worship unuseful. I thank God that I speak in other languages more than all of you. Yet, see, here's the thing. You got to read the rest of the sentence. Yet in the church, we're right back to him. He's reminding them, I'm talking about corporate worship. I speak in languages more than any of you. You think you're all spiritual? You think you're measuring each other by your by your spiritual gifts? I'm the top of that heap. But that's not what's important. In the church, I would rather speak five words with my understanding in order to teach others also than 10,000 words in another language. Wow. Paul has taken prophecy and tongues and he's set them side by side in the context of corporate worship. And while he does not throw tongues out, that's a pretty powerful ratio. Five intelligible words versus 10,000 words that mean nothing to you. If you had to ask Paul, what, what five words would you say? I, I spent some time thinking about this. What if you could only say five words? I shortened a, a song. Carl Barth, uh, uh, one of the uh, classic neo-Orthodox theologians of the 20th century, German theologian, um, whatever you think about his theology, he was a brilliant intellect. And yet towards the end of his life, somebody asked him of all the things you've ever studied, all the theology that you've ever contemplated, all the, the brilliance that, that, that you've ever uh, put, set your mind to, uh, what, what's the core issue that you would latch on to? What's the most important thing you've ever discovered? And he sang a little children's song. Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. 
I thought about that this afternoon. I thought, let's make that five words. Jesus loves me. I know. That sermon is more effective in Paul's mind than 10,000 words that can't be implanted in you because you don't have any way to rationally process what you're hearing. Now, see where he's going to take it. Brothers, don't be childish in your thinking, but be infants in regard to evil and adult in your thinking. It is written in the law, I will speak to these people by people of other languages and by the lips of foreigners, and even then they will not listen to me. It's interesting what, what's going on here is he's quoting out of Isaiah chapter 28, and he's going to say, he's going to say that God uh, can speak any way he wants. Look at verse 22. It follows that speaking in other languages is intended as a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers. But prophecy is not for unbelievers, but for believers. Therefore, if the whole church assembles together and all are speaking in other languages and people who are uninformed or unbelievers come in, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all are prophesying and some unbeliever or uninformed person comes in, he is convicted by all and is judged by all. The secrets of his heart will be revealed, and as a result, he will fall face down and worship God, proclaiming, God is really among you. Think about this. He quotes from Isaiah because in the context of the Isaiah verse, he's saying that um, that that messages from from foreigners were were used as a sign. Um, think about uh, think about the prophet Amos. Uh, I don't want to go too deep into Amos, but but Amos was from Judah, and God sent him to prophesy against Israel. He was an outsider. He came with a message of, of, of coming judgment, and God used an outsider to deliver that message because uh, because it was more powerful. It was a sign that God was was broader than just what Israel had had had, had boxed him in as. Think about the book of Jonah. Jonah was not a cooperative prophet, but Jonah was sent to the city of Nineveh, the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. Jonah didn't want to go because, frankly, the Ninevites didn't deserve to be forgiven. They were bad people. And Jonah was like, I'm not giving them a chance to repent. I want fire and brimstone to fall on them. I mean, Jonah, even when Jonah finally makes his way to Nineveh, he preaches God extends mercy. The Ninevites repent. God has this amazing spiritual awakening in, in the capital city of a pagan empire. And even after being the lead prophet in a spiritual awakening, Jonah's just mad. I knew you were going to let those people off the hook. Don't you just love it when we're more righteous in our indignation than God? Well, the point is, God used speakers from outside as signs of his worldwide, his global authority, and he would bring them in into these messages. Now, Paul takes that and he says, but it's just the reverse here. He said, he said, when you, when you speak in a foreign language in, in the church and unbelievers see you, and it's not just speaking in, in a language that's unintelligible. They were so animated and ecstatic in their 
presentation because remember their pagan background said said the more the more crazy you were the more you proved that you're under the influence of of the spirit so their worship services were just certainly bizarre out of control what is the impression of an unbeliever who has made his way into the church y'all be crazy i don't want any part of this I was pre, I was getting ready to preach in a church in Asia one time and everything was tongues for me in Asia, but, uh, but we were in the time of worship and, and, and even, even in the churches that I'd been in, this was a little out of control. I mean, it was, and it was getting more and more and the pastor of the church was sitting just a few feet from me up on the stage and, uh, and there was a, a, a guy that I was traveling with that spoke the language that was sitting here. And right in the middle of a song, he hops up, goes to the, to the, to the podium and kind of elbows the musician out of the way, speaks to them in their language. I mean, the place went. And he came and sat down and they started singing and calm. I said, what did you say? He said, I just told them that this was not of the Spirit, and if they didn't straighten up, we were leaving. (laughs) Wow. As a pastor, you know what my first thought was? I would be mortified if I'm sitting on the platform and the visiting preacher had to correct my people. But guess what? They calmed down. Worship was still enthusiastic, but it wasn't crazy. Well, if that had truly been the Spirit of God, you wouldn't have been able to shut that down. But it wasn't. It was just trying to show off. Paul doesn't want any part of that. He's not interested in that at all. He wants worship to be productive. He wants unbelievers to come and hear a clear presentation of truth. He wants them to be convicted by what they hear. He wants them to fall down on their face and say, this is true. I need this. They needed a good, healthy gospel witness in the city of Corinth. What they had was a Christianized version of a pagan temple. And Paul said, that won't do. We can't have it. Well, I think I'm actually going to come back. I'm going to go through the rest of this chapter, but I'm going to come back. We're going to come back next week. I want to see if I can finish this chapter. But we're going to come back next week. I want to revisit this um, idea of tongues because Paul is really just talking about... um, Really, this chapter is not about tongues. It's about productive worship. But he brings up the subject, and, and I don't want to leave it unattended. I want to come back next week, I've decided, and, and I'm going to do a survey of everywhere tongues shows up in the New Testament. And I'm going to show you what I think is a biblical position on tongues, what, what, is, what is possibly acceptable, what is out of bounds. Paul's going to give us some restrictions in this chapter, but I want to go back to the book of Acts uh, because particularly living in Tulsa, Oklahoma, 
you're going to have coworkers. You're going to cross paths with people. This is an issue that is typically going to come up in any conversation about church traditions and denominations. So we're going to, we're going to try, I'm going to try and finish the, the 14th chapter of 1 Corinthians, but then we're going to take kind of a parenthetical sidebar next week and, and go back to the book of Acts and, and come all the way through Corinthians again and see if we can't put the, the specific issue of tongues in a New Testament perspective so that you can really have a handle on how to have a conversation about this gift. Um, with the people that you meet. Let's look at the, the second half of this. Um, I've called this uh, principled worship. This is where he's going he's gonna to take everything that he's said so far and he's going to actually outline his expectations for the way the church should do worship. Verse 26, he says, What then is the conclusion, brothers? Based on everything, chapter 12, chapter 13, and, and everything I've said in chapter 14, what is the conclusion, brothers? Whenever you come together... Each one has a psalm, a teaching, a revelation, another language, or an interpretation. All things must be done for edification. If you're highlighting, you underline that sentence. It's not about tongues. Anything that doesn't push worship toward the edification of those who are participating can be set aside. If any person speaks in another language, there should be only two or at the most three, each in turn, and someone must interpret. Okay, the first uh, restriction here, uh, I, I've given you these, uh, corporate concerns outweigh individual experiences. In other words, Paul is concerned right now not with whether you commune with God in some sort of prayer, unknown prayer language. He's concerned about the corporate experience of worship. But in that corporate setting, he wants everything done in an orderly fashion. What he's saying here is when he says only two or three and each one one at a time. I don't know if you've been to some uh, charismatic or Pente- really not charismatic, more Pentecostal, classical Pentecostal churches. Um, the speaking in tongues is everybody at the same time. It's not for communication. It's not for edification. It's it's. It's just a personal expression, supposedly, of my communion with God. Paul's not okay with that. Because the goal of corporate worship is not your personal communion with God. It is the corporate experience of the presence of God in a way that edifies the whole body and moves us forward together. Okay? So, two at the most three... Each in turn, someone must interpret. Why does somebody need to interpret? Because without interpretation, there's no way to edify the body. Verse 28. But if there is no interpreter, that person should keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. Again, he's not denying the possibility of the gift, but he's saying without a way to edify the body, Leave it as a personal practice. Verse 29, two or three prophets should speak and the others should evaluate. Now, I love that verse. Uh, we, we usually hammer tongues so hard in this chapter that we, that we don't take time to, to see that Paul's also giving them guidelines for prophecy. Two or three prophets should speak. In other words, um, 
uh, he said there ought to be there there ought to be a couple of messages, and then it's good to have the message presented from two or three speakers. Um, but he says the others should evaluate. What does that mean? Okay. One of the one of the issues in particularly in Tulsa, Oklahoma, is the gift of prophecy is presented in our generation in ways that I think are um, unbiblical, certainly confusing. Because prophecy, particularly in the, in the Old Testament, had about it the connotation of direct revelation from God through a speaker. That element of prophecy, uh, really in the New Testament, begins to fall away. And prophecy is less about telling the future, about a direct revelation from God. It's more about an authoritative declaration of the Word of God. In our generation... We, we often see people who make prophecy about a word of knowledge or some sort of direct revelation. Let me just tell you this. The canon of Scripture, 39 Old Testament books, 27 New Testament books, 66 books altogether. The canon of Scripture, as determined within the history of the church, provides the complete parameters, the the boundary lines of what we uh, accept as orthodox instruction. What that means is, if anybody speaks a prophecy, a word of revelation, some sort of new truth, and you go to the Word of God, and that prophecy is contradictory to anything in the Bible... It is to be rejected. I mean, I mean I'm, I'm willing to live by this standard. I've been pastor of this church for 20 years. It is not okay for you to go home on a Sunday and say, Oh, man, I never heard that before, but he really took my mind in a whole new direction. Well, um, okay, let's check his words. What do we check them by? Well, I'm going to teach the, the text, but what you have to do is evaluate the teaching as I present it. Is what you hear coming out of my mouth consistent with what the Holy Spirit is teaching you from His Word? If it's not, my 20 years doesn't count. It's time for me to go. Go to Acts chapter 17. What you find is Paul gets run out of town uh, in Thessalonica, and the next stop, he leaves Thessalonica, and he makes his way to a little town called Berea. When he gets to Berea, he stands up and he teaches, and the comment is made in Acts chapter 17 that the Bereans were more noble-minded than the Thessalonicans. Why? Because the Bereans heard Paul teach, and then it says, now they were using what we call the Old Testament, But it says they searched the scriptures to see if what he said was so. He says they're noble-minded. Paul wasn't saying, listen, I'm I'm an apostle. I say it, that's what goes. No, Paul was saying, I live within the boundaries of the revealed word of God. That's what he says here. Two or three people should prophesy. There should be a couple of messages. I personally think that we should have church services longer than the ones we have but that's just me 
But don't miss that phrase. While the prophet, while the speaker is teaching, you know what your job is? Your job is to evaluate what's being said. Is it consistent with the word of God? Now, he says, um, two or three prophets should speak and the others should evaluate. But if something has been revealed to another person sitting there, the first prophet should be silent. Now, what he's saying is, if it's time for another person to speak, if, if the Spirit moves somebody to participate in, in the worship service within the orderliness of the service, he's not talking about, he doesn't want people jumping up and, and, and butting in and, 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 and trampling on them. He, he's, what he's describing here is an orderly transition from one speaker to another speaker. If, if the next speaker is ready, if they've been given something and they're going to speak, then the first speaker wraps up his time and he sits down. It's all about order and edification. For all can, for you all, can all prophesy one by one so that everyone may learn and everyone may be encouraged. And the prophet's spirits are under the control of the prophets since God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. In other words, the prophets are in control of themselves. They are not dancing around like whirling dervishes, speaking a language that they don't understand, embarrassing the testimony of the church. He goes on to say, the last part of verse 33, as in all the saints, as, as in all the churches of the saints, the women should be silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be submissive as the law also says. If they want to learn something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church meeting. Did the word of God originate from you, or did it come to you only? All right, let's talk about this for a minute. I've tried to run out of time, but I haven't quite done that yet. Okay, remember where we started. Scripture must be understood within its context. I don't know how many times I've heard these verses ripped out of this chapter and taught as some sort of uh, divinely ordained restriction on women. What's this chapter about? It's not about tongues. It's not really about prophecy. So it's probably not ultimately about women. What's the chapter about? The chapter is about productive worship that is presented in a way that strengthens the believers and testifies to the unbelievers without embarrassing the reputation of the gospel. Well, what's the circumstance in Corinth? Well, apparently... Because of the Christian value assigned to women, which was a radical, a revolutionary change over the Roman culture of the day, over the Jewish culture of the day. I mean, in a, in a Jewish culture where the testimony of a woman was not allowed in court because she was not considered to be a trustworthy witness, 
Jesus not only allowed himself to be followed by women, he taught them as if they were legitimate learners to be discipled in this process. And guess what? He allowed a woman to be the primary witness to the resurrection. Everything about Christianity elevated women. It gave them a recognition of value. It gave them a place of service. It made them understand for the first time in their lives in the first century that God had had not cursed them by making them women. He had created them as a special and unique creation. They had a place in the body of Christ, and that place was significant. But here's the problem. In response to that radical new concept of liberty, in Corinth, the women had overstepped the boundary lines of respectable behavior. And in the public worship setting, they were acting and speaking and behaving in a way that when an unbeliever walked in off of the street and sat down, he never got to the message that the Spirit intended for him because he was so put off by the unseemly behavior in the worship service. Paul is saying, follow the chapter. Paul is saying, here's my restrictions for those who speak in other languages. Because outside of these boundary lines... It's not profitable in the worship service. But then he says, here's my expectations for those who prophesy. Because if they're outside the boundaries of what can be evaluated according to the word of God, it's not profitable in the worship service. And then he says, and let me talk to the ladies. Because when you behave in a way that shocks the sensibility of the surrounding culture. Guess what? The worship service is no longer profitable to the people who need to hear the gospel. What's the principle here? Whether you're, whether you, whether you have the gift of tongues, whether you have the gift of prophecy, whether you are a woman newly enamored, with the gift of value that Christianity has bestowed upon you? The bottom line is, worship is not about you. It's a corporate experience and must be profitable for the body, must be intelligible for the unbeliever, and it must accurately present a God of order and peace and not be a time of confusion and embarrassment and shame. Paul is not telling women to sit down and shut up. He is telling Corinthian women, behave yourself because in your enthusiasm for your newfound freedom in Christ, you are damaging the reputation of the gospel. And that is not acceptable no matter who you are. Well, look what he says. 
Verse 37, if anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should recognize that what I write to you is the Lord's command. But if anyone ignores this, he will be ignored. Therefore, my brothers, be eager to prophesy. And here again, he throws us for a loop. And do not forbid speaking in other languages. He does not throw out the gift of tongues. Now, next week, we're going to survey the New Testament, and I'm going to show you why what your coworkers have told you might not be right. Okay, we're going to, we're going to look at the, at, at, at the, at tongues across the New Testament. But in this instance, Paul is not throwing it out, but here's the summary conclusion of the whole chapter. But everything must be done decently and in order. There are rules to the public use of tongues. Those rules are very well-defined and very restrictive. They're so restrictive, in fact, that it means it is extraordinarily difficult for tongues to ever be used in a public setting. I'm not saying, you didn't hear me say, it's impossible. You heard me say, it's an extraordinarily unusual moment when God utilizes that. I will say this, because tongues tends to be, and we'll look at this next week, because tongues tends to be a sign, a dramatic, uh, a, a miraculous presentation of, uh, of the presence of God, I think God tends to use it in settings uh, less developed, less um, theologically articulate, articulate less uh, with the Word of God less available. We'll talk about that next week, okay? Do not walk out of here and say, oh, man, our pastor just said tongues are okay. I didn't say tongues are okay, but I didn't say they're not okay. Why not? Because Paul didn't say that. But he did say this. I don't care whether it's tongues. I don't care whether it's prophecy. I don't care whether it's a female who's who, who's who's thrilled at her Christian uh, faith. In the corporate setting, worship is not about you. And nothing is allowed that compromises the ability of worship to bring glory to God, to edify the believer, to testify to the unbeliever, and to represent the gospel well so that the word can be implanted in our hearts and we can be changed people. We'll come back to 1 Corinthians 14 next week, but we'll, uh, we'll also begin in Acts 2 and kind of survey the instances of, of, uh, of tongues in the book of Acts and see if we can make sense of, of what the whole testimony of the New Testament is on, on this doctrine. Really what I want you to do is to just be comfortable enough with the conversation that, uh, that you don't run away when somebody brings it up to you uh, in your workplace or, or wherever you might be. Father, thank you so much for your word. I pray that your spirit is always the teacher here and that, our, uh, that the word implanted in us will take root and that we will be not only edified and encouraged, but also corrected and, and matured by your spirit and what he teaches us. Thank you for the preservation, for, uh, uh, for the inspiration of this, uh, this collection that we call the Bible. Father, it is a marvelous gift. Lord, I pray that those people groups still without this 
written testimony of your revelation. Father, help us to be faithful, to secure uh, your word in the heart languages of people all over the globe. Let it be done and accomplished in this generation, Father, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 